So, Mark. Yes. I want to talk about disaster movies. Okay. Because I'm going to just shoot it out right now. We're talking about Titanic. And my theory about the success of Titanic, or at least how you sell it to studio executives in the 1990s, is that it's a disaster movie. I think that's definitely a uh, big part of it. Because you look at a lot of the big hits of the 1990s. You're looking at Independence Day, Armageddon, Deep Impact, Twister, even things like Jurassic Park have a disaster movie element to them. And clearly there's something in the zeitgeist there at the time. I wonder what it was where people wanted to see everything explode. My theory is that with the end of the Cold War, to a lot of Americans, it doesn't seem like there are political threats the way there had been for most of the 20th century. And so the big scary thing that you can put your heroes up against is nature. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And what bigger force of nature than a giant hunk of ice in the North Atlantic? There's also the fact that people no longer feared getting exploded at every minute. So they were probably more willing to see it happen in a film without being like, this could happen to me. Right. You can drop a meteor on the Earth and then you can do that again. Right. And you can also have volcano because why not? Yeah, just everything will explode. So, in the spirit of that particular take on Titanic, I thought we could start off by talking about our favorite disaster movies. Starting, of course, with Geostorm. The best disaster movie, because all of the disasters are, at the end, controlled by humans. We have not watched that for the last time. We've seen it twice, haven't we? It's not enough! I think it's enough. That movie for rules! For at least a year. Andy Garcia as President Andrew Palma. I can't believe you remember that. I can't believe you remember any names from that movie. He is the only one. Then there's um, Jim Sturgis. We don't. And Gerard Butler. Neither of us know the character's name that leads the film. His name is Gerard Butler? (laughs) I think that's the character name. And there was Senator Richard Schiff. And the female character... (laughs) about all she is though zazie beats was in it she was cool yeah but name a single other character name besides president palma president andrew palma uh secretary of state etta harris <laughs> again you can't name a single character i in just this movie. a lot of them <laughs> all right so what's your pick for your favorite disaster movie uh my take is i do not care for them why not i don't like watching hundreds of thousands of people die and then i just kind of tune out at a certain point so there's an interesting thing that happens in my like grand thesis of disaster movies where 9-11 happens and the american public loses their taste for watching thousands of people die at the same moment and so then it takes a while for filmmakers to catch on to that we have like some climate disaster movies we get 2012 the day after tomorrow things like that but By the 2010s, movies are kind of having to reckon with that post-9-11 dislike of disaster movies, where one of the reasons Man of Steel takes a lot of flack is that Superman and Zod destroy an entire city in their fight and never talk about it. Whereas then, two years later, in Age of Ultron, a vastly underrated movie, the Avengers spend most of their time just getting people away from disasters so that when they need to blow up a building, the audience knows there's no one in it. I just 
I tried to watch Poseidon when I was younger, and I just stopped because I was kind of just thinking of myself as a little kid. Where is the entertainment here? We're just watching people die. Right, and part of the question is, have you made it a character story? One of the things I think Titanic does well is every time they're trying to show us something dramatic, it is anchored in a character they have bothered to set up. Even if it's something as simple as the room with the grand staircase, they show us Guggenheim going down into it, asking for a brandy, and then when they want to flood it, we see him... He said he was going to die like a gentleman. He actually looks terrified. And so this moment of disaster is grounded in a human emotion. And a lot of lesser disaster movies don't bother to do that. They think audiences will just be excited by, look at the thing explode. Right. Titanic takes the time to show respect to the people that are dying. Whereas a lot of disaster movies don't take that into account. And it just depresses me. I think one of the reasons for that is that Titanic is working with real people. And James Cameron put in the work to figure out what the deal was for each of those people. I think if you watch a scene like really anything on the deck as the boat is going down, there's no crowd acting. There's nothing where like, ah, oh, the whole crowd is going to run this way. Ah, oh, the whole crowd is all like peas and carrotsing to each other. It really feels like each person has a specific objective, partially informed by who they are on the ship. What was that noise? Our apartment is haunted by the hereditary cult. Apparently. That is a real thing I check for every morning when I leave if it is still dark out. That movie still freaks me out. I really am so torn between watching it and not. It's so good. I have it on Blu-ray, have not built up the courage to watch it again. I feel like you won't until I force you to. I have actually been trying to convince some of our other past guests, Josh, Catherine, to watch it with me. And we have this like hereditary pact where we're all going to watch it together. So as soon as our schedules align, like the planets at the end of Hercules, we will be together watching the cult of payment come together. Is this a thing you force your guests to then come back and watch really scary movies? I don't force anyone to do anything. I was not told about this in advance. I encourage my friends to see the best available movies. And even if those are going to scare the bejesus out of us, it's still a good time. I still think the next movie we need to watch is The Room, because it's truly an embarrassment that neither of us have seen that film. Yeah, we need to get on that. I've seen Birdemic three times, though. I think I've only seen it twice, and I feel good with that. But when are we doing it on this show? Because talk about a disaster movie. Oh my god. Birdemic might be the best disaster movie. It is so deeply earnest. It has a message that you can see frequently on signs throughout the movie. Imaginepeace.org. You can't argue with that. Still on Prime Video. We should do it. Yes. We'll do it like May or June. It's coming up. Hi. A commitment right now. That's how the movie starts, Rachel. Ah! Hi. Great. <laughs> um, also, if I can be so bold as to say, I think both of you are taking the wrong approach to figuring out what the best disaster movie is. Because the best disaster movie, hands down, is The Wizard of Oz. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Make the pitch. Okay, so there's a tornado. Everything that happens is 100% because of the tornado, whether you want to say it knocks Dorothy out so she has this weird dream, or it causes the house to drop on the witch, which is the reason everything happens. 
in Oz. So you would say the tornado is the murderer. The tornado, I'd say it's more manslaughter because or tornado the tornado slaughter. causes the house to be dropped. I don't know. Is the house a weapon or is it... Is it tornado slaughter or witch slaughter? Is it referring to the perpetrator or the victim? Ah, I'm not sure. But in any case, nobody dies except the bad witches, as long as you don't read or watch Wicked and, and not have canon. different opinions about it. I'm going with the movie here, obviously, because the book is very different. But only the bad people die. Everybody lives happily ever after. And it was all thanks to a tornado. And being from Oklahoma, I have a very strong connection with tornadoes. Wait, wait, wait. So your take is the tornado is the hero of the Wizard of Oz. I mean, we don't know what happened to Dorothy's neighbors. And we don't know what kind of property damage occurred on the farm. And because we don't know that, we can live in a world where nothing bad did happen. Which means the tornado is to thank for this beautiful colored adventure so the tornado is the hero of the wizard of oz wow never you're the one who said that explicitly. i'm just repeating your ideas back at you but synthesizing them see i got i grew up being very scared of tornadoes so it was nice to have a movie to it was the friendly tornado Wait, some tornadoes were okay not every tornado was gonna be bad you go to library story time they pull out the book today we're reading your friend the tornado it's actually yeah that's what it like, and like in public it, library. In it, there's a picture of like cellar doors with googly eyes on them, and they like pop open, and underneath you can see a little family like waving. The tornado smiles. It has a little face. Also with googly eyes. Yeah. I'm googling it to see if this book exists. You're googly eyesing it. <laughs> Your friendly tornado. There is not a book called The Friendly Tornado. Verbal copyright 2019. <laughs> I feel like... Can I be the tornado expert consultant on this book? Yeah, of course. Great. I feel like tornadoes should not be something that we are making children less scared of. So the other thing is, people joke about this, but it is a real thing. During tornadoes, I had multiple friends who would, like, go outside to watch, and it was partially because there are so many meteorologists in Oklahoma... So I actually have some friends who were in the movie Twister because their dad was a consulting meteorologist on it, so they got to be extras. But in any case, there are so many meteorologists that you just know people who go out tornado chasing for fun in the weekends in spring. So you want to be like them, so you go out to watch. Did you grow up hanging out with Natalie Portman's character from Thor? Yes! No. I haven't seen Thor, so I don't know. Speaking of the film Twister, (laughs) Bill Paxton wears an earring in this movie, and that took up 90% of my attention. Let's be clear. Bill Paxton in this movie is playing James Cameron. (laughs) Bill Paxton plays a character who has assembled a team to go out to Titanic, dive down under the ocean, use robots, check it out, explore, talk about the wonder of the ship... He is clearly in charge. He has a single-minded drive. He cannot conceive of anything outside of his life that is unrelated to this ship. And then, when the movie is over, Bill Paxton gets together with Susie Amos, who Cameron married shortly after this movie. I did just Google whether or not James Cameron had an earring at this time, and he did not, sadly. That's the cover. That's That's how they're like, oh, this is not James Cameron. That's the one distinguishing fact. I mean, James Cameron literally wanted to go down and see Titanic, and he originally pitched, like, let me go down and shoot footage of the Titanic. So all the stuff down there is real footage that Cameron shot because he convinced the studio to let him go down there and shoot it. 
mostly because he wanted to. And there had recently been a big IMAX film of Robert Ballard's expedition to find the Titanic, and that had done really well, so Cameron was like, let a, let a Hollywood crew do it, and I'll make you a movie, I guess. Actually, a fun fact about the Ballard expedition to find the wreck of the Titanic, because when the original Titanic sank, it was a huge news story. You have investigations by the U.S. Congress, by the British Parliament to figure out what went wrong. There's a movie about it like a month after it comes out called Saved from the Titanic, starring a woman who was on board who was having an affair with a Hollywood producer. And so it's a movie like adapting her being on the Titanic and then getting off. And you have a bunch of movies in the decades since. You have A Night to Remember from the 50s. You have The Musical comes out before this in the 1990s. And in 1988, Robert Ballard leads an expedition in the North Atlantic to find the wreck of the Titanic. It's this huge news story and it reignites a lot of interest in the ship going into the 1990s around the time the musical and then the movie come out they just declassified last december that that mission was funded by the department of defense and its primary job was to find two downed nuclear submarines because they were worried about what might have happened to the nuclear reactors on board and they had permission from dod like if you still have time when you're done, go ahead and look for Titanic. <laughs> and so by the time they found the subs, they were like, okay, we got 10 days left. We got to find this immediately. And they managed to pull it off. It's a good cover story, too. Right, because it sounds like a cool adventure expedition. Yeah, it definitely managed to hide that fact because no one even remotely talked about that until they declassified it, it seems. Is Ballard the one who left, like, a little plaque thing or something that said, let the Titanic rest, don't bring all this stuff back up, we should respect it? I believe so. Okay, because the first time I studied the Titanic in school, in my textbook, there was a little afterword, because it had been about Ballard's expedition, and there was a little afterword that said, he left this plaque, since then... This many people have found the Titanic and this many artifacts have been brought up and all these things. And I always thought it was really weird that they put it like that and didn't acknowledge that there was some disconnect between he thought it should stay at rest. Next sentence. This many people have brought things back up. People are terrible. Yeah. Have either of you guys done the Titanic experience? The like traveling exhibit? No, but I yes. have seen the musical. <laughs> Which is very good. I have done that twice now, and it is actually really cool. What is it, like it's a simulated really cool. sinking? Yeah, you walk through and you get to see. Well, first of all, you're given the name of a person who was actually on the Titanic. And then you walk through and you can see how it was set up. And then it is kind of chronological. But you get to a point, the thing I remember really strongly is you're trying to go upstairs and there's a gate, so you can't get up the stairs. So it's like if you had been in steerage, is it called steerage? Third class. Yep. And then at the end, there's a wall with the names of the people who survived and the names of the people who didn't. And so you can oh, find, find yourself. your name. Yeah. And when we did it, my dad was the officer in this movie who kills himself. He got that he was name when we went Murdoch. Yes. 
That was, like, kind of controversial when the movie came out. Yeah, it was. Because Murdoch is, like, kind of a hero in his hometown in Scotland. And there were conflicting reports about him. There were reports that he put a lot of work in getting a lot of people on boats. Where he was in charge of getting people onto boats, he got a lot more people saved than on the other side of the ship. So he was recognized as hero. But at the same time, there are reports of gunfire on that side, and some survivors claimed that they saw someone shoot themselves over there. And it becomes this whole mess of a thing, and Murdoch's nephew complained vehemently about his portrayal in this movie, to the point that some Fox executives flew out to Scotland and personally apologized to him. Yeah, my family actually was living in the UK when this came out, and I was a toddler so I had no idea what was going on but my parents remember reading a lot of local and national newspaper coverage talking to families of people who were upset with how their loved ones had been portrayed and Murdoch got a whole lot of stories. I will say and I'm kind of echoing some comments James Cameron made at the time I think the movie actually for the most part treats him very well where we do see him helping a lot of people, and he winds up ultimately kind of overwhelmed by this horrifying situation that he's in. And the ultimate proof that the movie thinks Murdoch is a good guy is that he's there in the final sequence back aboard the Titanic. Because none of the bad people are there. He also throws the money back. True. At Cal. They do the whole redemption arc then it's more of a redemption roller coaster (laughs) his character definitely has his ups and downs in the film kind of like james cameron diving down to the titanic except when you dive you shouldn't go up and down (laughs) because that's how you get the bends you go down and then you go up and then when you want to go down again you do that cameron's like really into water i didn't notice that Well, I'm putting this in the context of, like, other stuff from his career, because this comes shortly after The Abyss. His first movie, of course, is Piranha 2, The Spawning. And right now, he is hard at work on Avatar 2. This time, it's underwater. Is Avatar 2 the underwater one? Yeah. I knew one was going to be underwater. That's why it's taken so long to make Avatar 2, because he wants to take all the Avatar technology and then do it underwater, and water is crazy hard to animate. So he's, like, really into exploring the ocean and stuff like that. He did two documentaries about, like, deep sea exploration between this and Avatar. And if you dig it up, there's a really funny interview he gave around the time when Aquaman came out. And it's him being like, yeah, I guess it's, like, a fun movie, but nothing would move that way underwater. And it's him just being, like, a huge water dork and being like, I guess you guys like Aquaman, but none of it is accurate. Because Avatar is super accurate. He's, like, really into physics. I appreciate that. This is a man who took one year of community college as an English major, dropped out to become a truck driver, and then whenever he was in L.A., he would check out books about special effects from the USC library, teach himself film special effects as a hobby, and then one day he sees Star Wars in theaters and decides, I could do science and movies together, and quits his job and tries to get into film. I'm honestly really excited for Avatar 2. It's gonna be good. No one ever got rich telling James Cameron what people wanted to see. Like, this movie was supposed to be a disaster. There's no reason this movie should have worked. It was, at the time it came out, the most expensive movie to ever come out. It cost over $200 million. You'll remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Pirates of the Caribbean coming out six years later, and its astronomical price of $130 million. So this is well above that earlier. Cameron wound up foregoing his salary 
in order to make the financing of the movie easier. It, like, kept dragging on. He convinced Fox to build an entire new studio on the coast of Mexico with a 17 million gallon tank in which he could build a 90% scale replica of the Titanic and just shoot on it. In the meantime, people on the project were, like, getting crazy sick because it was cold when they were shooting in the North Atlantic, stuntmen were breaking bones. At one point, this is true, a disgruntled crew member who has never been identified was so fed up with how intense James Cameron is, he's like famously obnoxious. A disgruntled crew member put PCP in the lobster chowder that they were all eating for dinner. 50 people involved in the production, including Bill Paxton, had to be hospitalized. James Cameron too insane of a hard worker for that, forced himself to throw up when he realized something was going on so that he could keep working. And he kept working through the night, except one of his eyes was apparently totally bloodshot, just beat red like the Terminator. I don't think just vomiting would get rid of all the PCP from your system. It apparently did enough that he was able to keep working because he's James Cameron. I just wouldn't be surprised if he had experience with some other aids that help you stay up all night working. I mean, that's possible. You know what we haven't done yet, Will? I'm very aware. Well, This is going to be our longest episode ever, which is maybe fitting. Given that this movie is approximately seven hours long. It is a tight 315. (laughs) My real hot take on this movie is that it is great only because of how long it is. If it were any shorter, it would be substantially worse. I agree with that, but I think this movie could have learned a lot from Call Honaho by having an intermission. I actually heard stories of some theaters screening it with an intermission. Smart. And of course, if you watch it on VHS, you have an intermission as well when you have to change out the tapes. Or DVD. That's true. The DVD edition I have is on two DVDs, but I also have it on Blu-ray, so not a problem. Everything through Blu-ray and digital require two-part viewings, so it was definitely a thing I had to pause a couple times to just, you know, take a break, get some food. I started it at 6, which means I had to pause halfway through to eat dinner because I was like, well, this won't be done till after 9. That also happened when Rachel and I watched it because we also started at about 6, but then we watched it through, and then after a while I was like, I guess I should order pizza. Yeah, no, I stood up and said, I'm sorry, I have to leave, I'm too hungry, and Will said oh, I'm ordering pizza now. And I said, okay, I guess I'm never leaving here. Is this when I showed up home? You guys were still awake watching Queer Eye. I was like, in my head, I thought, isn't it 11? How long ago did this movie end? And now looking back, I realized probably not that long ago. Not that long ago. (laughs) Well, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep, deep beneath the Atlantic Ocean down to a point where the pressure is so intense that if there were one flaw, we would all die immediately. And once we get to the bottom, we ask ourselves this most important question. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in. We will see what's there. And this week, we are joined by a longtime listener, author of the hashtag PD summaries herself, Rachel. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It's great to have you finally. Yeah. So, you have come to us to talk about Titanic. Yes. As people may have figured out by now. (laughs) 
I know we've been kind of alluding to it, dancing around the topic as we like to do. But why don't you start us off by telling us about your Titanic story? Sure. Uh, I have quite a significant Titanic story, given that I had only seen this movie once before last week. As I said, my family was in the UK when it came out, and so I grew up occasionally hearing my parents allude to things that they had read in the newspaper when that happened. But even more importantly, my middle school best friend was obsessed with Titanic. We became friends in sixth grade, and she almost didn't want to become friends with me because I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies because I was 11, and so I couldn't watch Titanic. But then she decided she needed to be friends with me because Titanic inspired her to want to make a friend who had red hair and danced, and I did ballet. So my best friend in middle school, I don't think she was only my friend because of Titanic, but it helped. And then all throughout seventh grade, when I was 12, and therefore could not watch PG-13 movies. But getting closer. Getting closer. Um, she would make me quizzes about Titanic and Leonardo DiCaprio's career and all these things to make sure that I was still learning and paying attention. Uh, to be fair, I made her some quizzes about ballet, so it wasn't just like she was forcing me to only learn things she was interested in. She also learned about things I was interested in. But Middle school friendship is weird. Middle school friendship is... I don't know if it's great or horrible, but I learned a lot about Titanic, and finally, I think it was the weekend after 7th grade ended, I was not 13 yet, <gasps> but I know... <laughs> Scandaloso. Side note, my mom is definitely going to listen to this podcast, and I think she sometimes, in retrospect, feels like she was a little too strict. So, mom, it's fine that I couldn't watch Titanic until the summer after seventh grade. Anyway, we watched it, but my sister was only 10, so she was too young to watch it. So, my friend had come over to spend the night, and we watched it in my room on one of those little portable car DVD players. So I, just as James Cameron intended. Exactly. <laughs> I loved my little portable DVD player because I wasn't allowed to have a TV in my room. So it felt like skirting the rules. Those things were invariably crappy. And yet they played key roles. The movie that I think I watched the most on that DVD player was Ella Enchanted, which you all have covered. And oh boy. Oh man. Fantastic. But there was a little green dot on the screen of the DVD player that never went away. And in Ella Enchanted, there were some scenes where it was just like perfectly placed to be over somebody's eye or like in their nostril and that is what i think about when i think about that dvd player but anyway i got to watch titanic and my mom hadn't wanted me to watch it or part of why she hadn't wanted me to watch it was she was worried i would be too affected by it and she but told like all me, the death yeah and she told me going in you know just be prepared like there's one part where there's a mother floating in the water holding her baby like it's really moving and i watched it at age 12 and came out kind of like they clearly are dolls like this is not that bad and didn't watch it again until now so at age 24 holy cow this movie is so moving yeah i don't have any 
feelings when I was 12. I cried during this, and I am not a big crier. It's a lot. Yeah. But yes, that is my history with the movie. And sadly, my friend, about a year later, moved her obsession from Titanic to panic at the disco. No! So you learned it all for nothing. I learned it all for nothing, and at that point I was kind of like, first of all, I have stayed with my ballet obsession. I've stayed true to all this knowledge you learned about point shoes and things still is relevant to me, and I don't trust you, so I refuse to learn anything about Panic at the Disco or listen to any of their music, Or and I, to this day, I could not name a single Panic at the Disco song. I do like that they have the same, like, grammatical styling yeah. as Boo a Medea Halloween, where you do exclamation point after the first word. I also, think Panic and Titanic rhyme. Maybe that was how she... Oh, Titanic at the Disco... Seems Ooh. like a thing. Like some kind of My Heart Will Go On remix with a disco beat. Uh, my Heart Will Go On, I Write Sins, Not Tragedies mashup. Exactly. Let's just pick songs with even longer titles to try and mash up. Here's the deal. My Heart Will Go On, great song. It is. It's awesome. And it was written by James Horner. In secret, because James Cameron didn't want any songs with lyrics in the movie. Because he thought it would seem like a crappy commercial, like, oh, we're just, like, going to try and get a big musical hit in case this movie flops like everyone thinks it will. And so James Horner wrote the song in secret, like you were saying, got Celine Dion to record, like, demo vocals. And then, according to interviews with Horner, he's like, yeah, I waited until Jim was in a good mood. And then I showed it to him, and he was, like, pretty grumpy about it, but agreed that it was good and we would use it. Because then maybe, at least, we would have a hit song that could, like, help the studio make back some of its money since this thing is going to be a disaster but is the version with lyrics actually in the movie itself it's in the credits right so it's still not taking away too much he was worried that even that would seem like you get to the end of this movie and then there's like a cash grab and of course under academy rules for original song the song has to be in the movie or the first credit song this movie is in no way a cash grab, even though it made so much money. So this movie comes out, it was widely seen as a thing that was just going to be this big boondoggle, much like Avatar, Cameron's next movie, much like his two previous movies, True Lies and Terminator 2. So again, I say, no one ever got rich telling James Cameron people didn't want to see his very expensive movies. It comes out, it becomes the highest grossing movie of all time until Avatar comes out 12 years later. It stayed at number one at the box office for 15 weeks. That is unheard of. It lasted 10 months in North American theaters. Its most profitable day after opening in December of 1997 is Valentine's Day 1998, two months later. Good God. It also was originally supposed to come out in July and wound up getting delayed because Cameron said the special effects weren't ready, which of course contributes to it's going to be a disaster. Then there's like fighting between the studios because it was so expensive. It was originally with Fox and they were trying to get another studio to help them out with the financing. So they got Paramount on board. Paramount got domestic distribution. Fox got international. So Paramount agrees to set it in December. They had wanted November because then you get like the Thanksgiving crowd, you get to go into Christmas, but Fox said no because they had Anastasia coming out in November. So Paramount agrees to do it in December, and then Fox cuts them out by premiering it internationally on November 1st. So it's this whole thing where it seems to be a disaster on all ends, and then it comes out and it rules. But you do see some, like, hedging where there's a really good 
Entertainment Weekly piece from like months before it came out that I'll put up on social media of the panic around it. Like how Fox tried to get him to cut an hour out of the movie and like told him, these are the things you should cut. And Cameron was like, the only way this movie's getting cut down more is if you fire me. And the only way you can fire me is to kill me. Wild. Jimmy Cameron. Friendly guy. His niece went to school with me, actually. Is this your friend who made you memorize all the Titanic stuff? No, she was in middle school when I was in high school, but my school was so small that it was 6 through 12. So I think she and my sister maybe were friendly, but I think she was the year below my sister. So I was way too old to be friends with her. She did date an exchange student, though. And they, like, stayed dating for at least a year after he left. Oh, wow. And then I graduated. And, and so you can't tell us the end of that story? No, sorry. Can you come back 84 years from now and tell us the end of the story? Yes. Okay. But I can't tell you now because then it might give away the really expensive thing that I gained from this story. Precisely. That you can't know about yet. It's a signed James Cameron script? That would make sense in this context. They did sell the drawing he did of naked Kate Winslet. It was auctioned off a couple years later. Mark, I don't know if you know that, but James Cameron drew that drawing. I did know that, and I guess she's not 17, but the character is. They're both 22 at the point the movie comes out. Kate Winslet also wanted to be in this movie real bad. Yeah. Like, she was hardcore petitioning them to cast her, and then they made her get a trainer because she was too curvy. Really? Yes. So I know about how she, like, kept calling James Cameron up. She sent him a note after her audition with a rose attached to it and was, like, really going hard for it. Meanwhile, DiCaprio was, like, being kind of cagey. He's like, I don't want to just be, like, some heartthrob person. Kept trying to get Cameron to let him add, like, a limp and, like, make Jack look really weird looking. And Cameron's like, we're not going to do that. You have to stop. I feel like Kate Winslet now seems so reluctant to do any movie that she's in. So it's very weird to think about her being excited about a project. She's great in Steve Jobs, the Aaron Sorkin, Danny Boyle movie. That movie rules. She's really good in it. She is good in stuff, but I feel like her persona now seems to be that she's Kate Winslet and I'm above everything. So it's very weird to think about her as like a young person who has to fight her way into success. I mean, it'd also be a tiring process working with James Cameron. Yeah. I feel like that could take a lot of wind out of your sails. <laughs> I think it did. I also fully assume that Rose was British because it was the Titanic and she was played by a Brit and I was very thrown by her accent. Yeah, she's an American. And one of the things that that movie does an okay job of is showing all the different kinds of people who are on Titanic. We do see a Syrian guy on there and there were a bunch of Syrians on Titanic. This was a ship with lots of different people on it. It was actually designed to work better for people making the crossing for immigration than a lot of other ships at the time. Like Titanic, as much as like people getting shut down in third class when it's going down is bad, was designed with third class quarters being much better than comparable ships at the time. Like the fact that they had rooms with four beds is very different from what you would see on other ships making the crossing. The White Star Line, which owned Titanic, was investing in, we're gonna make our ships a really nice trip because they decided speed was not their forte. Their big competitors were working on doing things fast, so White Star was going to go for luxury. Well, they definitely got luxury down. But that's really ironic, given that part of the reason Titanic had issues was because of the pressure to go faster and get in early. So according to the investigations done by Congress and Parliament, there's not 
at the time a real push to like we're gonna break records because that wasn't their goal like they were taking a slower route okay. like they were going the wrong way to make the record to new york so that was not the main thing the problem was that they didn't slow down when they knew there were icebergs around so then they were going too fast to be able to turn effectively away from the icebergs this whole boat was such a disaster though I went to the Titanic Museum they have in Belfast, which is gigantic, and they have a fun ride where you gotta sit on a chair, and it, like, flies you alongside as people are riveting in bolts and stuff. But they also talk about how all of those bolts were not up to code, essentially. Well, one of the big problems with Titanic is that regulations had not caught up with technology. So, Titanic had more lifeboats aboard than they were legally required to. The existing maritime laws said that ships carrying over a thousand people needed to have at least 16 lifeboats. Titanic had 20. The problem was, at max capacity, which Titanic wasn't quite at, it could hold 4,000 people because those regulations were from 20 years earlier and shipbuilding had advanced. By the same token, if you read like interviews with people at the time, they had reached a point where they're like, ships don't capsize anymore. We figured out the technology. And even earlier that year in 1912, a German ship had collided head on with an iceberg making the North Atlantic crossing and had still made it to New York. So there was this perception that like, eh, lifeboats, schmifeboats. Nick sent me the Wikipedia article for another deadly crash, and it happened, I think, three years after Titanic, and it was caused by the fact that they forced boats to add more lifeboats. So this boat became unstable because of the new lifeboats, and then crashed, and, like, hundreds of people died because they didn't implement the safety in a good way at all. Whoops. (laughs) Yeah. So it shows that... You gotta do some work before figuring out safety regulations. You can't just say, add more lifeboats, because this boat already was too top-heavy. Mark, I've heard that regulations are burdensome and crush freedom. Let's not get into that. Is slightly topical, or does that not work because this podcast is being recorded live when it comes out? Uh, It's being recorded live, but we like to talk about the past. I mean, Titanic is a movie set in the past. Okay, so we're so always the, incorporating the recent history. cast of Boeing, it's so interesting if you look at the fact that these systems Boeing was charging extra for, even though they were systems that made the planes a lot safer, because given the way that air travel has evolved, that is something that you can do. And these two planes that crashed relatively recently to each other didn't have this system that they said contributed to them crashing because you had to pay extra to have this system that would help you not crash. So it's interesting to think about like boat technology back then, plane technology now. It's so hard to have regulations that keep up with it and really keep people safe because we keep wanting to innovate and create new and better or bigger, more luxurious, whatever things. And the problem then is you also need the people making those regulations to understand what's going on. So you don't have the congressman asking a guy from Google why his iPhone doesn't work. That too. The other problem with new planes is that they are significantly less comfortable because I took a 787 after taking a flight on a more normal, like, smaller plane, and I think there were about six inches in terms of seat width that were lost in the 787. So you're looking for the Titanic of airplanes. You want, like, the grand staircase, and you want somebody to give you a brandy and the whole deal. 
Imagine if you had a plane with a grand staircase. It'd be great. I did fly on a double-decker plane a year ago when I was going back to London, and it was one of the most exciting moments of my life to realize that was my plane. That is very cool. It was so cool. I also flew on a double-decker plane and was excited until I realized that on this 15-hour flight, they didn't have personal entertainment. They only had one shared screen for the entire cabin. Was it showing Titanic? I do not remember what it was showing. You could watch it five times. They do have the Titanic level experience on flights now with the suites that you have to pay like $10,000 for. Of course, there is also the cruise company that's building Titanic 2, where they're rebuilding the ship. And the idea is it'll be exactly the same. Hopefully not exactly the same. I was about to say. Let's talk about the number of lifeboats on this (laughs) thing. But close. So are they not going to use modern technology to do things like detect icebergs? I'm really not clear. Great. That sounds like a great idea. I just found an article that said Titanic 2 to set sail in 2018, but that didn't happen. I don't think it did. Uh, Now there's a more recent article that says 2022. There's probably still time to get tickets, Rachel. Ooh. Let's do it. All right. Live show. How long is this voyage? Where is it going? Is it not going from Southampton to New York? Is that the plan? I assumed. I need to know what it is so I know what kind of joke to make about how you would only be able to watch the movie Titanic two and a half times over the course of this voyage. I mean, transatlantic journeys these days, even on ships, I think New York to London takes about six days. Okay, so I take it back. You could watch this movie five whole times and take a nap. On this point. I think you could do it more than that. <laughs> this is a very long movie. It's good. I'm not complaining about it, but this movie is really long. Okay, well, we have been talking for almost an hour, so maybe we should start talking about the romance of the movie. Oh, God. Great. This is going to be a long one, like I said. Uh, the Titanic 2 will stop at the same ports as Titanic 1. Tickets are not yet available for purchase. And they will be made available when the maiden voyage is announced. Also, there are no job openings. Alas, can I work in the gymnasium? (laughs) That is an interesting question. If you had to work on the Titanic, what job would you want to have? What would you pick? See, the problem is, if we're talking Titanic in the time period, I don't have as many options open to me as a woman. I was actually going to say, I feel like ladies maid seemed to be a pretty good one because you got on board the lifeboats. Right. And you get to hang out in first class, but you also have to deal with all the really rich entitled people. I think I'll still go with that one though. Yeah. Ladies maid is fine. But not that I'm ordained or anything, but being the chaplain on the Titanic, barring the, you know, sinking and having to, like, do last rites for a thousand people, that would be really cool. That does seem cool. Yeah. I feel like a waiter for second class would be a good spot to be because you're not dealing with the worst rich people. You're dealing with the upper middle class, but you're still not stuck below decks. With the peasants. With the peasants. Alright. I also, think I'm gonna stick with working the gymnasium, or I want to be one of the crow's nest dudes. Actually, yeah. The I crow's nest right dude. Ahead. We're gonna sit up there with the binoculars. No, you lost the binoculars. That's the problem. I can sit up there without the binoculars and point out people making out on the deck. <laughs> Look at these guys. They're not at dinner. Makes sense, though. What else are you going to do with They're your gonna time? They're going to go do it in a car. 
Oh, the makeout was before the car, but then there's a makeout after the car too. Correct. That's the one I have an issue with. We'll get there. Okay. So every week we break down the romance into five major points, which means we will be completely ignoring most of the Bill Paxton plotline, whose character I can't remember. How- his character is named James Cameron. <laughs> How could I forget? I just remembered his name is Brock. The perfect name for that character. What a great name for an ocean douche. <laughs> Brock is the quintessential ocean douche name. I mean, he does have, I guess it's only in the alternate ending. He has the romance with Susie Amos. True. So I guess he has no romance. Have you yeah. seen the alternate ending, Mark? I have not. Okay. It's well, not good. It's... It is substantially worse. Is it as bad of an alternate ending as Sweet Home Alabama? No, nothing is worse than the alternate ending of Sweet Home Alabama. But Sweet Home Alabama's alternate ending is just so ridiculous that you get entertainment value from it. And I would say that the alternate ending of Titanic is not super entertaining. It's just kind of weird. So Mark, what happens is when Old Rose, Gloria Stewart, goes to the back of the boat to like throw the heart of the sea into the ocean. Bill Paxton and Susie Amos find her and they like think she's gonna like jump or something. So they're like, whoa, what's going on? And she turns around and shows them that she has it. And Bill Paxton is like, what the heck? And is like trying to convince her not to throw it in. She's like, don't you see? You don't need it. And then like she lets him hold it and then she throws it. It's like Just a weird thing. Just let me hold it. Just once. It's really weird. And like part of the problem is in that scene, like you don't know who you're supposed to root for. It's like, do we want Bill Paxton to get it? Do we want him to not? So it's just this bizarre thing. And also in it, he's like flirting with Susie Amos. Well, she tries to get him to dance with her and he won't. And then after he touches the heart of the ocean, he becomes a changed man. Rose throws it into the ocean while facing them, but makes the same mm, sound. So it's a <laughs> the very best moment in the film. Like, Basically giving them the finger by throwing it over her shoulder while making eye contact with them. But touching it has just inspired him that now he wants to dance with Susie Amos and they dance and have a lovely time. But the point is that the story is what inspires him to be a better person. Right. Which is why it's better off. So what's weird is what we call the alternate ending is actually like part of this scene that they cut out. Like the scene begins and ends the same way. They've just removed this conversation. I just can't get over the noise she makes when she throws it off the ship. (laughs) All right. So we get the framing device. We introduce the character Brock, who's just as awful as his name would imply. Brock the ocean douche, who is looking for a diamond because he's a treasure hunter, I guess. We're more of treasure protectors. Is that like a thing you can be still? What, a treasure protector? Nicolas Cage did it in National Treasure. That movie came out a while ago, though, at this point. Is it still a thing? We're in a new decade now. It's only been, what, 15 years? I just feel like if he actually found this heart of the ocean diamond, the family that owned it would immediately sue and reclaim ownership. Is there anyone left from that family, though? Because Cal got married, but then he committed suicide. Did he have children? It will pass on to someone legally. It would not legally belong to the guy who finds it on they the bottom of the They did file an insurance ocean. claim. They got paid for it. But also, I guess if he found it, it could legally belong to Rose because it was a gift to her that she had been given already. It belongs to the sea now. Honestly, the French state would probably take it if it was from the crown. If there was no other claimant. I mean, presumably it was sold. Yeah. 
Seems sketchy. Apparently disappeared, remember, Will? I mean, a lot of things disappeared during the revolution. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people disappeared during the revolution. I don't know how many people were disappeared at that time. It seemed pretty public what they were doing. (laughs) Sure, it's public if you're in France, but, like, if somebody comes over from Austria, they're like, what happened to Louis? They're like, we do not know. He has gone somewhere. (laughs) We will let you know when he comes back. They're like, make a show of, like, checking under the couch cushions. Can't find him. What did they do with his head? ultimately i assume it's buried that was actually the origin of the game of soccer they would like (laughs) kick it around in the streets of paris i mean they were all christians still so they probably give him a christian burial even after they killed him well i mean right around that time they start being like we should not be christian anymore i mean john the baptist's head ended up on a plate right do christians i get was john the baptist killed by christians no no No. christianity doesn't exist when john the baptist is killed john the baptist is killed by salome after trying to seduce her father okay very weird story there I mix them up occasionally because they're both two very well-known historical men who lose their heads. I mean, all headless John, men look John the same. John the Baptist is the one whose head got on a plate, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So the romance of Titanic. He was dumped in an unmarked grave. Ah. So you might say his body disappeared. With his head buried between his feet. Was it, which direction mm. was it facing? Was it facing the east so he could see the sun come up on Judgment Day? I, Wikipedia does not have that on it. That is how the cemetery in my hometown is set up, I can explicitly tell you. So the romance of Titanic. So, Rachel, walk us through the points. Okay, and keep in mind, a lot happens in this movie, so I tried very hard in choosing these points to keep it on the major developments or shifts in Rose and Jack's relationship. You know what this episode has really done well? Keeping it concise and on the major points. We've got a lot to talk about. (laughs) So let's crack on. So what I'm saying is if you all want background on who Rose or Jack are or anything about that, I did not include that in these points. So A, you should watch the movie. B, odds are decent. We'll talk about it. Cool. So my first point is Jack sees Rose on the deck and he is on the steerage deck and she is on the first class deck and he catches a glimpse of her and his friend says to him, you are more likely to have angels fly out your arse than to get a girl the likes of her. Okay, so this whole movie is a story being told by old Rose, Gloria Stewart, to Bill Paxton. He's like brought her out there because she called him up after seeing him on TV and was like, I know where the heart of the sea is. So they fly her out there and she's like, it's been a long time. He's like, just tell us everything. She's like, all right, here's the story. And then we cut to the past and Rose is wearing the best outfit. She is wearing this like white and purple striped dress with a big old hat. She looks awesome. They're coming out. We've got Cal, her fiance, is doing a great job of being like, this is the best ship that's ever existed. Not even God himself could sink this ship. And so we're really like getting kind of hyped up. We've got Leonardo DiCaprio. He's at the port. He's like playing cards to win tickets onto the Titanic so he can go home to Wisconsin, where he's from. And he's really excited. He sneaks on board. He tells the guy, don't worry about it. We totally got cleared. We're Americans. We don't have lice. One thing you're not including in this is 
because the boat is pulling away from the port. They have to, like, jump onto the ship. It's awesome. It's like Indiana Jones sliding under the doorway in the temple. I wrote in my notes, I can tell I'm growing as a person because I didn't get stressed out watching them potentially miss the ship. I didn't get stressed out by that, but, like, when Rose is, like, pulling herself over the back of the ship when she's first meeting Jack, I was, like, getting some of that free solo tension in my neck. I was not ever stressed about them making it on the ship because I was like, boy, would this be a different movie than what I've led to be believed if Leonardo DiCaprio is not on the Titanic. That's why he says, I'm king of the world, because he realizes, I dodged a bullet! (laughs) How dark is that? Really... One of the things that is important about the length of the movie is it needs to get you to forget about the fact that the ship is going to sink. I mean, at no point am I like, the Titanic is going to make it, right? But you need to get so wrapped up in the story of the people on board that you're not focused on like, all right, what's going to happen so it goes down? I mean, if they really wanted to distract me, they'd just keep her in that hat the whole movie because I wouldn't pay attention to anything else. I mean, this podcast is... A very pro-hat show. As it should be. It's a good hat. So anyway, Jack sees Rose. Jack sees Rose, and he is quite enamored with her, but he is more likely to have angels fly out his arse than to get a girl the likes of her because she is first class from a wealthy family that we later find out has lost all their wealth, but engaged to another wealthy guy. And he has just been doing a bunch of odd jobs all around the world and now is finally going home. Right, but they're like on a deck. They have a private promenade area. They're hanging out with Andrews, the architect, played by best friend Victor Garber. He's so good in this It's like movie. another great moment. Once you see Victor Garber, you're like, oh. We're in good hands. This is a good dude. It's like the movie puts a little blanket on you when he comes on screen, because you just feel so comforted. That's what's so subversive about his role in Legally Blonde, is that you're like, oh, Victor Garber, we're safe here. And then you're like, no, he's gross. (laughs) But yes, love him as Andrews in Titanic. He's great. I watched the Nearer My God to These sequence many times on YouTube this week. And the moment when he fixes the clock as the room is tilting and it's going down it's like he's just this guy who like wants to help people and is sad that his ship is going down he's great he is i mean the ship does go down which is some indictment on his character well we do see that like he for example had pushed for more lifeboats yeah but i mean as i learned at the titanic museum thing there were a lot of structural things that were wrong and if the ship had been built correctly it would have survived was that an issue of the design or the actual building process i think it was a mix of both okay but by all accounts andrews did as the ship was going down go around and get a lot of people out he's yeah he was one of the people who comes out with a really elevated reputation as opposed to someone like j bruce ismay who comes out with one that is much worse is he the one that survives he's the owner who gets on a boat relatively early i can't imagine he was a popular man back on the land he was not i actually have a really excellent poem from the chicago journal that i'll put up on social media as well but it's comparing ismay with captain smith and really elevating the like captain goes down with his ship mindset and so celebrating smith as opposed to ismay and it ends To hold your place in the ghastly face of death on the sea at night is a seaman's job, but to flee with the mob is an owner's noble right. 
And it's just kind of being like, the heroes, the honorable seamen, would stay with the ship. But the owner's like, fine, get out there with the riffraff, like the riffraff that you are! Anyway, Jack is talking to his Irish friend about his drawings, and his Irish friend is like, wow, do you make money for those? But Jack isn't listening, because he's like, wow, that's a pretty girl over there. And Kate Winslet looks at him, and then she looks away, and then she looks at she is very arresting. Oh, I yeah, she looks totally great. understand why he just stops in the middle of a conversation. But she looks a second time. So, like, that's a thing. I mean, again, the VHS cover box kind of spoils the fact that that second glance is meaningful. The fact that their heads are superimposed onto each other is usually a giveaway as to the relationship direction. We talked about this with... Star is Born, we've talked about this before, but, like, it's absurd that we don't make big romances like this anymore. Because people will go and see them. And even though they're, like, mocked as, like, uh, like, that's a girly movie, which starters, who cares? Women see movies. But number two, like, these movies, like, Star is Born and Titanic, men also like them. Like, the knock against them is not only dumb, it doesn't make sense. This was the best-selling movie for a dozen years. Until James Cameron made another movie. Right. I don't understand it at all. I want more romance movies, but I also am tired of straight romance movies, so let's make anything besides that. That's where I'm at. So, they see each other on the deck. Point number two? Point number two. This was my shortest point. Rose has become really distraught because she's having dinner in the first class dining cabin and realizes like this is what the rest of my life is going to be and she's only 17 so there's a lot of life left right and she's engaged to Billy Zane who plays Cal who is like wealthy and snobby and a big old jerk he is a jerk but we haven't seen that yet and I'm gonna have more to say about that in a second but anyway she becomes very distraught and kind of works herself into a frenzy and decides she's gonna to jump off the ship and out the back the propellers are gonna chop her up or she's gonna drown like she's done and she's like run out on the deck wheezing to the stern of the ship her hair was up in a really nice top knot and somehow between running out of the dinner and getting to the deck has completely fallen out another thing i really appreciated is that you can see her makeup is all over her face because she's sobbing and that's one thing that really bothers me in movies and tv shows when a character who is clearly wearing makeup and is also clearly crying or wiping their face or something still has perfect makeup and they don't do this it's really realistic what would happen to her mascara so she is going she's about to jump and jack sees her and comes and saves her but in the process of saving her she falls and almost does go down and he still pulls her back up but she screams because she's falling and her fiance and the sergeant in arms and a bunch of people come and they think that jack was assaulting her because that's what it looks like when he like hauls her over the railing and like they kind of fall onto each other yeah and her dress is torn and she's clearly really distraught his jacket's off yeah he had taken off his jacket and his shoes because he was gonna jump in after her if she 
did jump and that was kind of how he got her out of her funk of if you jump i'm gonna jump too and he's like it would be really cold and i don't want to do that yeah he talks about growing up in chippewa falls and falling through the ice while ice fishing chippewa falls not a real place but james cameron grew up in chippewa ontario oh okay yeah so he gets her out and they become friends as a result and she convinces cal the fiance to invite him to dinner at first cal gives him like like 20 bucks yeah and says thank you for your help and she says he saved my life am i really only worth that to you and he says well this will be a treat for you how about you come dine in the first class dining room tomorrow night so he does but also in the meantime they just kind of become friends and they go for a walk and she actually is really rude to him at first he asks her if she loves cal and she's kind of mean to him unnecessarily in response yes that is a very personal question but i didn't think he had said anything to merit such frustration and she had been like kind of talking to him about all of her angst about getting married to cal and he's like oh well do you love this guy and she's like screw you i mean for 1912 that's a very personal question it is and the idea of love is not exactly important i like when she's like i'm leaving now and she's shaking his hand to say goodbye and they shake hands for like an hour and that's like a third of the movie but also why can't she just say either that's a very personal question and move on or honestly no but i'm marrying him and that's okay because that probably would have been an okay response at the time why does she get so offended by this and then be mean to him but what saves it and suddenly she's not offended when she sees his drawings because there has to be at least some controversy somewhere sure (laughs) that's the only reason that it happened face of death is not enough controversy we all know the worst part of every romance is the contrived conflict yeah but they get it out of the way real fast right and before that they have the thing at the back of the ship which i think is a really great meeting like he shows up and he's like you're not really gonna jump if you were you were gonna do it but like please come back over like i don't want to jump after you it is like a very tense conversation but like there is a sweetness to it in his earnestness and the fact that he is here and he's just like i'm gonna help And this is a movie where a lot of the people can kind of be divided into those that are willing to put themselves at risk to help other people and those who are not. And really from the drop, Jack establishes himself as someone who is going to go out of his way to help people. I will say not exactly the best way to handle someone in the process of committing suicide. No, I think he's worried that if he runs, he'll like startle her and she will drop. No, that's what I mean. But still, it's just... He doesn't take her very seriously. He's like, oh, wow, it will suck if I have to jump in after you, rich girl. It's just not exactly, you know, psychologist approved behavior, I'd say. No. (laughs) I agree with that. But I think the point that the movie is trying to make is it still worked. So even if he was taking a risk, the risk paid off. So clearly they must have some connection because he knows what to say to her to calm her down from this hysteria. I mean, she took a second glance. Of course they have a connection. They basically had sex right on that deck. I was listening to Amy Nicholson from the LA Weekly on Unspooled talking about this movie. And she had a comment that I really liked. This is a movie that puts in a lot of work to walk you through the geography of Titanic. So you'll understand it. We get it at the beginning with Bill Paxton navigating the little 
drone camera through the ship so we see all the stuff on board so that before we see it in the past we know what we're looking at we get the tour as well with victor garber so we've seen our way around the ship but that the architecture of the ship is also reflected in the structure of the romance between jack and rose where they meet at the back of the ship when she's about to jump off the romance kind of reaches its climax at the front of the ship because the climax is not when they have sex it's when they're standing at the front of the ship i'm flying and then it kind of reaches its end at the back of the ship again when the stern tilts 90 degrees and they're hanging off the end and so there is this nice three-act symmetry reflected in the structure of the boat hmm. deep just so, like the north atlantic ocean exactly <laughs> so jack gets invited to dinner they like hang out during the day she sees I... his drawings Yeah, so they hang out during the day first, and then they go to dinner. And one thing that really was striking to me was the role of etiquette in this dinner. Molly Brown very kindly loans him a... What's the dinner? A tuxedo. Is it a tuxedo? There are tails. Yeah, it's still a tuxedo. Okay, Okay, so she very kindly loans him a tuxedo to wear to dinner. because By this point, Jack has taught Rose how to spit. Yes. Kathy Bates has just continued to be perfect, as she always is. She's great. Yeah, and they go to dinner, and she is explaining to him what fork to use and all these things that are a little intimidating, but the other people at the table are being incredibly rude to him, and I am very into etiquette, and... The entire point of etiquette, as I understand it, it's to make people comfortable. And sometimes that's through giving you a script of this is how I act in this situation. And sometimes it's through just teaching you how to be flexible. And an important part of etiquette is understanding what someone else you're interacting with's background might be and knowing if I set up this four-course meal and that they might not know what's going on and it's my job to either navigate them through it or find a way to bridge that gap so that we don't have to have this four-course intense meal. And I wondered if that was a shift, if the point of etiquette in the early 20th century was actually to differentiate. We are well-bred and high-class, and you aren't, and so this is how we can tell because you don't understand that you're supposed to, you know, he, like, practices escorting her to dinner and kisses her hand, and he only knows that because he observed it. So is it something to determine who is high-class and who isn't, or is it still something that is supposed to be used to make people more comfortable in a given situation and they're just kind of perverting that i think it depends on the person i think that like cal sees it as a way to differentiate class status whereas other people might see more of the politeness aspects to it and there's a distinction there i do love that jack when he shows up for dinner he's early and leans against the wall which is my move and then i love when he like kisses her hand and he's like i saw that in a movie i've always wanted to do that yeah and that's excellent he's watched other men escorting their wives or whoever to dinner so that he knows how to do it with rose and you see him practicing the arm movements and everyone in first class except maybe molly brown rose and and victor garber and victor victor garber do they talk much no not really they don't really interact but he's not actually trying to make him feel out of place and just again this idea of etiquette as a form of separation rather than as a bridge to make people more comfortable in new situations was something that really stood out to me but yes they go to the dinner and jack is kind of treated as like a weird thing to like stare at and like kind of mock a little bit he gives his big speech about like just live life to the fullest and like take advantage and he comes so close when he's toasting to it to doing the exact shot 
from the great Gatsby of Leonardo DiCaprio holding out the glass of champagne. Oh, yeah. It's so close. But then after that, they leave and he invites Rose down to third class to see a real good time. they go to the dance party. I got really strong Dirty Dancing vibes of like baby sneaking out and going to the staff dance for the first time Mm. with Rose down there being like, what is all this crazy dancing like I've never seen before? Yeah, so I think it must be a jig because they're Irish and the music that's being played sounds very jig-ish, but I don't know a ton about ballroom dancing, but watching it looked very similar to a polka to me. So if either of you or if any listeners can please let me know what the similarities between a jig and a polka are again i meant to look this up and just didn't have time like they they look like they're doing a polka but they're definitely playing a jig and i don't know enough about jigs to know if that's what was happening my polka knowledge is limited to weird al and john candy in home alone well in any case polka is a great form of dance highly underrated but i think they're doing a jig anyway they are dancing and he says to her she doesn't know what to do because she has grown up in this very structured world and this is just having fun and he says don't think and the implication is don't think just dance which i love so they start dancing and they're having a great time and she chugs a beer and then we get to in my opinion the most controversial scene in all of titanic and this is not a movie known for controversial scenes super controversial she decides she wants to show off because these people are doing their party tricks and so she rises onto the tips of her toes and okay so i'm just gonna talk and will you can edit out whatever you decide is not interesting of this so where we are in the world of ballet it's something that rose very likely would have studied to some extent growing up because it's something that well-mannered young ladies learn would she have been studying it to the point of doing point work toe work i'm not totally sure i would have maybe been a little bit surprised but let's say that maybe rose just really loved ballet and did a lot of it when she was in europe especially that would have been something more common than in the u.s at that time fine the way that point shoes are structured now they really help you be on the tips of your toes i did ballet pretty seriously for about 15 years including a lot of point And at the end of that time, I could not have done what she does in the movie despite having really strong feet and ankles because point shoes just aren't structured to have your foot in that position without support for it. That said, that innovation in point shoe technology only started happening in the 1920s, 1930s. So we're still on the edge of wearing really, really soft shoes, which means that she would have had to have a lot more foot strength in order to do any point work. So could Rose have risen onto the tips of her toes like that? Potentially. She wouldn't have been able to balance like that for as long as she did because the amount of weight that she would have been putting on her toes would have been causing the bones to expand too much. But we'll say that it was just like a weird stop in time or something, fine. Point number two, Kate Winslet doing that. I have tried so hard to find a conclusive 
statement of whether or not it was her. That statement does not exist. So I watched the YouTube clip of this scene this past week quite a few times, not as much as Will watched the Near My God to these scene, I'm pretty sure, but there was a lot of slow motion on here. And from that, I have concluded this was not Kate Winslet completely unaided rising onto the tips of her toes. Why? Well, there are three ways to get on point. You can step up onto point, you can bend your knees and then use the momentum from straightening your legs to roll up onto point. Which is kind of what the movie implies. No, the movie implies that she is keeping her legs straight and just rising through her toes using the muscles in her legs, pushing them together and that friction helping her go up onto her toes. She does not bend her knees deeply enough to have enough momentum to get up. This is called an eleve. In my opinion, it is the worst way to get onto point because it's really hard. And if you look in the movie, her legs aren't straight when she's doing this. I can't do point anymore because I tore a ligament in my ankle, but I tried this morning to see how much I could get just onto demi point, which is when you're not on the tips of your toes, you're just like the ball of your foot is still on the ground. If I could do that with my legs just like a little bit bent like hers are, and I could, but it was hard. And even at the height of my ballet career, like there is no way that I would have really been able to do that, even in modern point shoes, get onto point. So Kate Winslet definitely does not do this. And I'm pretty sure if you then look at the scene of her full body, she's holding onto something over her head. Because the other thing is, based on her arm placement, I would believe that she had studied maybe a little bit of ballet, but she definitely was not a super intense ballet dancer studying in like the 1980s, 1990s, because her arms are not straight enough for what they would be. She's trying to imitate a dancer without having done tons and tons of ballet herself. So what we can conclude from this is Rose maybe could do this, but not for as long as she did. Kate Winslet, I would believe those were her feet, but she was supporting her weight another way when you see her rise onto the tips of her toes. That said, that scene is part of why my middle school best friend wanted to be friends with a redheaded dancer. So maybe I shouldn't complain about it. There you go. All right. Should we move on to point number three? Well, they have a really good time, whatever, they're dancing some. Cal's body man, who's a former Pinkerton, sees them. Cal, by the way, earlier tonight, gave her the heart of the sea, the big blue diamond from Louis the Sixteenth. Yeah, he was planning on saving it for their engagement gala Oh yeah. they were gonna hold. And when he gives it to her, he's like, there's nothing I wouldn't give you or deny you if you won't deny me. And she doesn't respond, but it's clear he's like, let's do it. And so then the next day, when they see each other, he's like, I was sorry you didn't come see me last night. And she's like, yeah, I just uh, went to bed. And he's like, after you had fun downstairs? And she's like, what? And he's like, I don't want you to ever see him again. So yeah, this moves us now into point three which is the shift in their relationship from where it goes from being platonic to romantic. Oh no! Jack sees Rose and wants to talk to her and she says, no, we're done. I'm engaged. This can't happen. She says, I'm engaged and I'm in love, which oh, she refused right. to say the day before. But then she changes her mind. Oh, sorry, before that. Rose says, no, she's in love. And Jack says, he's in love with her. And she gets really angry and says, it's not up to you to save me. And he says, right, only you can do that. 
Which is an interesting dynamic from their meeting place when, again, he was there kind of to save her falling off the ship. So we're distinguishing between sort of saving physically and saving emotionally in terms of relationship, things like that. But she gets really angry at first and storms off and then quickly changes her mind and we go into the I'm flying scene. Well, what happens is she's then with her mom and some of the other adult women on the ship. And as she's sitting there kind of torn up about all this, she sees a little girl being forced to like sit properly, sit up straight, put the napkin in your lap, like do the whole deal. And she's looking at this and we're kind of led to believe seeing her childhood, seeing her past, seeing her future. And it's like, no, forget this. I don't want anything to do with this. So then she goes and she meets Jack and they stand on the front of the ship. He's like, do you trust me? Like, climb up on here. And she's flying. And then they make out. Seems a little bit like I, having recently climbed over the railing and thought about jumping off, wouldn't be keen on standing up on the railing again. I but mean, it's cute. She's on the inside of the railing, as opposed to the outside when she falls off. But they're like stepped up onto it. So they don't have a lot of purchase. They're on the lowest rung. I still was watching it and I was just like, it has not been that long since she thought about jumping off the boat. It stressed me out. I'm sorry. But then you get the I'm king of the world line. No, I'm king of the world is when he gets on board. Fabrizio. And he goes up there with Fabrizio. Fabrizio, the true hero of this story. Originally, Fabrizio had a little more to do at the end. He was like helping a lot more people get off the ship. And then he's trying to get on a rowboat. And Cal like uses an oar to shove him off. So like Cal basically murdered him in the original version of the movie. And then James Cameron was like, "Eh, this is too much. Like we can't turn Cal that far. And so they shot a couple other things. And if you watch the scenes of the ship going down now, you almost never see Fabrizio with other people because they shot it after the fact. And he winds up getting crushed by the smokestack when it goes down. Poor Fabrizio. Ah, Fabrizio! Um, And then they are like going around the ship. Yeah, she wants to show off her paintings by a little known artist named Picasso. Do they say something Picasso or Pablo something? They say something Picasso. And she shows off her paintings and then pulls out the heart of the ocean and says to Jack that she wants him to draw her like one of his French girls. Because he drew a lot of naked French ladies while he was there. But he doesn't get it at first. And she says, I want you to draw me wearing this. Only this. And then he gets it. And then James Cameron draws Kate Winslet. Yep. That was the first scene they shot. Apparently it was a thing like they didn't plan to shoot that. Like the first time the two of them were together. They were just like, the ship was taking longer to build than they expected. So they're like, okay, what can we shoot right now without the ship? Because this movie was nothing but delays and should have been a disaster. Yeah, sounds about right. You can tell that it could have been a disaster watching the movie. Which makes it all the more thrilling that it works. Yeah, but at some point, we just continue to watch them have fun together. Well, they start getting chased. Right, they're getting chased by Cal's body man, the Pinkerton. And they go down all the way into the furnaces... They're like hiding through the crew decks. They run through the furnaces because a big ship at this point requires people to shovel coal the whole time. And she is wearing a very flowy, gauzy dress that I'm pretty sure caught on fire at some point. It would have had to have if James Cameron is really this into physics. All right, so maybe it did. And then they go into the car and they have the steamiest sex ever, which I mean literally because the car is full of steam after they do it. Yep, she puts her hand on the glass. James Cameron apparently is on record saying that the hand on the glass is her orgasm. 
officially. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Didn't That's probably really the commentary. need to know that. That's according to my best friend who loved Titanic, so this is 10-year-old knowledge, but supposedly. Okay. He's on record. Well, good to know about yeah. that. So they bang, and then... Chitty-chitty bang-bang? <laughs> yes, they chitty-chitty bang-bang. They bang, and then they're caught. Right. Well, not Not immediately. They they find the car whose windows are completely fully steamed up. How much body heat do these two humans produce? I mean, this is like normal, right? Maybe there were like three other couples already in the car. (laughs) (laughs) All at the same time. Yeah, that's what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. That would make more sense. And then we get I mean, cars are new enough. Like, there's one car on the ship. It's exciting that there's a car on board. (laughs) Like, everyone wants to get it on the car. This is the original, like, park the car and have sex in it. This was the first time someone did it. Did you have to sign up to make sure that there was going to be room in the car? No. You signed. Based on the amount of steam, clearly not. They all just went in. You signed up for a time slot, but some people overstayed their time. Did you have to write in the steam? That's where the sign up sheet was. And then you only had until the name got steamed off in the car? Yes. Okay, cool. That's in one of the 30 deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. Got it. So they steamed up this car. Their body temperatures have got to be so high right now. Not to mention they just had sex down near the furnaces. And then they go up onto the deck of the ship. She's not wearing a coat. And they make out amongst the icebergs. I have written in my notes, sex in car, arrow, hypothermic makeout session. Because they would have had to be uncomfortably cold. It really bothered me. Their hearts keep them warm. No. All right. At that point, thereabouts, Jack gets framed. Well, no, they hit the iceberg first. Yeah, so while they're making out, the ship hits an iceberg. Yeah. Spoiler. Yeah. We, care less goes about, down. we care less about that than we do about well, Jack and Rose on this no, show. it's relevant to point number four. The ship hits an iceberg. They go to tell people the ship just hit an iceberg. And they say something really serious happened. And Cal says, yes, it did. Oh, no. The heart of the ocean is missing because Cal found the naked drawing of Rose in his safe. Because they left it in the safe for him, right? For him, yeah, with a mean note. It was like a rude It's Now you note. can keep both of us in this safe. Yeah, and he knows it was Jack because they had talked about how he was an artist, and so he decides he has to frame Jack, and he puts the heart of the ocean into his coat pocket. Jack had stolen the coat, too, so that doesn't look good. And they say something serious has happened, and they say, yes, it has. He stole this diamond and this sows the seed of doubt in rose's mind where she's like did you only want to be with me because you saw it as a way to get two things to steal so jack gets sent down to the brig which on this ship is just like a room where he's handcuffed to a pipe and he's gonna be kept down there as the boat starts to sink and everyone else is like time to put on your life belts and get up so that we can get you off except the crew is like not totally saying like the ship was going down they're like it's just a precaution put on your life belt and all the like first class people are really cranky like i just want to be in bed or drinking my brandy essentially so the ship is going down they're separated point number five um well no i think the important thing here is that the seed of doubt has been sown in rose's mind and that is the reason that 
she is willing to let him be arrested. But then all of this is happening and she gets on a lifeboat with her mother and then says, no, I'm not doing this and gets off the lifeboat. It's again a rejection of her mother's attitudes and life and she just this whole trip has been like, I don't want this. Right. And so she jumps back off as a direct rejection of the life her mother has been telling her she needs to have and instead goes towards Jack, the life that she wants to choose well, for herself. She gets off the boat and I don't remember what it is because it was very dark at this point so I couldn't see to take a lot of notes. But something happens where she realizes that Jack was framed and so she needs to go rescue him. But also she doesn't want him to die. So she needs to go rescue him. Which is point number five. Point number five. She decides that she would rather die and be with this guy who she has known for, what, three days than live, but live a life that she feels like she is constantly being put in a safe and locked up, metaphorically. So she gets back on the ship. She's able to get down to the lower levels, which is not easy, as the ship is starting to flood. And she gets into where Jack is. She sees that he's handcuffed to this wall. The room is like, got a lot of water in it at this point. She cannot find the key to bust him out. So she goes and she takes a fireman's axe. And, like, this is kind of a cool moment. Jack's like, all right, take a few practice swings. Like, so you don't take off my arm or anything. So she slams it against the cabinet. And he's like, all right, try to hit the same place. And she swings it and hits, like, completely different place. And he's like, all right, enough practice. Come here, cut my chains loose. And it's really notable that she is the one who is kind of hysterical right now. And he, on the surface, is very calm and kind of consoling her and calming her down and directing her even though he is the one who is at this point guaranteed gonna either die or probably lose a limb and she could still leave and get on a lifeboat. But it's worth noting that's when she's in the room. When she's on her way there or when she's getting the axe we see him alone in the room and he is freaking out. He's putting on a front to try to calm her down which I think is nice. No, it's because they're in love, so he has to make her feel safe, even though they're both about to die. So she's able to get him out. They get up to the main deck where the lifeboats are being loaded, and they accidentally hook up with Cal. And Cal and Jack work together to get her on another lifeboat, and Cal says, I have a deal with an officer there's a place for both of us. And she hears that and she's like, okay, I'm going to get on this. And Cal and Jack both know Cal is lying because as soon as she's on the lifeboat, Cal says to Jack, you're a good liar. And Jack says, yeah, almost as good as you. But Rose is on a second lifeboat and then jumps back onto the Titanic again, again! because Jack is not with her. And at this point, like, the boat is going down. They wind up together. They run to the stern of the ship. Well, Cal is so angry that she wants to be with him that he takes his bodyguard's pistol and starts shooting at them. Oh, right. And the only reason they escape is he runs out of ammo. But to do this, they had to run down the grand staircase into the, is it a ballroom? I don't know. Whatever it is, it is filling up with water. It's mostly just to get some cool shots of them running through a flooding ship. There are some cool shots. There are cool shots of them running through a flooding ship. Then they wind up running to the back of the ship. It tilts up. They're like hanging off the back of the end. They have to let go. 
fall into the water. Then they, they climb him up, get on this big door. Yep, and then they float for a while. She's floating on the door. He's, like, hanging on the side. He could fit geometrically on the door, but he could not fit weight-wise on the door. We see this because they both try to get on, and the door tips. So the internet can shut up about that. Yeah, it's covered say, in the can movie. Can you please repeat that? Because I don't think that people heard you. It's not about the space. It's about the buoyancy. And then he admits that he loves her. She says, no, this isn't the end. And he makes her promise to never let go of life. He says, promise me you'll survive and never let go of that promise. And he dies hanging on the board. Question too. He dies. She realizes it and kind of lets go of him. And he sinks straight down into the water. (laughs) I didn't get that either. (laughs) That's not how water physics works. That's not how bodies work. I I feel like if there's one thing we know from movies, it's dead people float. Otherwise, what's the point of concrete shoes? Dead people floating. Why? And I was trying to figure out, like, is it because he was straight up and down, and so he has to sink a little and then right himself horizontally and come back up? But he never comes back up. I think it's a metaphor. It is. It's just a cool shot. I was thrown by the fact that the body started sinking. Yeah. So she gets rescued when she's on the Carpathia, which is the ship that does come and pick up the survivors of the Titanic. She hides her face so that Cal won't see her and goes back to the United States, becomes an actress. Says her name is Rose Dawson, which is his last name. So that means that I'm assuming she wasn't like a big movie actress. So people who knew her didn't see who she was. So nobody knows that she lived. And she has a nice life and has a family and grows old as Gloria Stewart. And now here she is on a ship with Bill Paxton as James Cameron. And she tells this story and says to her granddaughter, I never told anyone about this, even your grandfather, quote, a woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. Right, it is. A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. We all know this. <laughs> yeah, just this an established a, fact. This is no, a science I, fact. I thought this was important to keep in mind because <laughs> A, the heart of the ocean is the name of a diamond. So if a woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets, is this actually like a mummified woman's heart? Well, yes, the, it is. The heart but of the ocean is a deep woman of secrets. <laughs> but also interesting that a survivor of the Titanic, and she didn't get on a lifeboat early on. She barely made it out, and she is still totally chill using deep ocean metaphors. I feel like she probably uses more than most people. Like, deep ocean is more meaningful to her than most things. Also, given that her granddaughter didn't know anything about Jack, I wonder how much of this story of the Titanic and her grandmother being a passenger on it, she did know about. I Possibly don't think none. none. I got the impression that she didn't tell anyone she survived the Titanic. Yeah, I got that vibe as well. I loved all the shots of her as Kate Winslet living a life because there was a photo shoot someday where they were just like, all right, what do we want next? Uh, Kate Winslet... Next to an airplane. Foot on a plane. What do we want next? Mm, Kate Winslet on a horse. Oh, but we only have one more shot, and there's also a roller coaster we have. I know. Horse in front of a roller coaster. It's great. So yeah, then. That's all the things that she and Jack were going to do together. Here's what I want to know before we move into our final questions Does Rose die at the end of the movie? Up to interpretation. So, Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart both said yes. James Cameron said, don't want to say. James Cameron is who made the movie. I don't think it matters. That's my biggest takeaway. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I tend to think yes. I also think the ending is a big part of what makes the movie work. Because the movie in its second half, or second VHS, if you will, becomes 
so intense and so sad that impossibly then that dream sequence going to heaven whatever in a weird way becomes like a happy ending where you're like ah these are all the people i like again especially when you think about that two rows the titanic was the location of the greatest trauma of her life so the fact that this is able to turn around and be a positive thing for her too is Like, what a wonder of human psychology. The brain is so resilient. The only way you become the highest grossing movie of all time is if people see your movie multiple times in theaters. That's the only way, for example, you're going to be number one at the box office for 15 weeks. And I think if you don't have that ending, it's still a really good movie, but people don't go back to it that way. Another way that you can get them to see it multiple times is by having it be 16 hours long, so they have to take a nap in the middle of it, which means they have to go back to see what they missed. (laughs) That's a good plan. That's what this movie did. So, we just watched this whole movie. Yes. We have been talking for unedited close to two hours. Do we find the romance between Jack and Rose believable? I'm going to say yes, because I think that for him, she is kind of the wife that he could never have because of his circumstance of not being wealthy. So there's kind of like the shiny toy that's out of my price range element of it. For her, he is what she could never have because it's freedom. And so that would create the initial attraction, followed by they are compatible, they have chemistry, and then they encounter something really traumatic, and that has an effect on your relationship. So I think, taken within the context of the movie, yeah, I think it's relatively believable. Yeah, I think it's more believable than not. I'm gonna say it's believable, also because they're just two horny teens. They're horny teens! Let's not forget the fact that they are dumb horny teens. Well, yes, they're dumb horny teens, but I still think that high-class 17-year-old dumb horny teen would potentially turn up her nose if it was a different dumb horny teen. Sure. But it's also two hot young horny teens. So That's true. 10 point scale where zero is totally unbelievable. 10 is totally believable. Where would we rate this? I would probably go like a six or a seven. I don't I think it's super like. Six. Yeah, I feel yeah. good about six. Where yeah. like there's definitely some strong believable stuff. It's more believable than not. But it is a whirlwind. There is a significant class barrier. Like there are challenges here. We have Cal getting him arrested. Like, there's a lot going on. Mm. And that's the other thing. We would have to believe that Rose, despite her upbringing, was so strong-willed that she was willing to defy everybody, even when she was at risk of then having no money and being a pauper and... She had never experienced that in her life, but Cal is the only way that she is going to be able to continue living the life that she's used to. And she'd have to be willing to completely turn away from that. Do we think that Rose and Jack are dateable? I kind of think, yeah. I kind of think, yes. I think Jack is. I don't know that Rose is, but it could just be because she is kind of immature, and she's 17. It all goes back to the fact that they're teens again, where I'm like, I think in the context, like, as, like, in the context of, like, a teenager, which we have to do sometimes, right. like, I would say yes. yes. Yeah. Like, they're far from the worst teens we've seen. Yeah. yeah. Who would you date if you did have to pick someone from this movie? Molly Brown. Kathy Bates is great in this. Yeah, but also Molly Brown as a person, like, I've read a couple of articles complaining about how Titanic portrays her because she was so much cooler than it portrays her. She did so much, and then... 
after the Titanic kept doing really cool stuff before Titanic had done really cool stuff. She and also, organized, she's copy baits. She organized first class passengers to help raise funds for third class passengers who like lost everything on the ship. She's so cool. She's a good choice. She's very cool. What about you, Mark? I really liked the old man with the mustache that was always just there commenting on things. Guggenheim? No. Like, he was there when they find Jack, and is just like, oh, 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 arrest the boy. And then when he, she's like, oh, he rescued her, he's like, oh, 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 what a great guy. And he's just there the whole movie. I don't even remember his name. For me, it has to be the lead violinist in the orchestra. I like that guy a lot. Like I said, the nearer my god to the sequence was something I really, really, really enjoyed. And particularly... I love the beginning of that because going back to what I said so long ago about how every person in this movie has different objectives and different goals. They're playing before that and he says, all right, guys, like time to go and get out of here if you can. And the other members of the quartet start to leave and he just picks his violin up again and starts to play. And I love watching each of the other members of the quartet come back to him because you can see them all come back at different speeds, have different thought processes. The other violinist picks up his violin right after him and starts playing. When the cellist comes back, you can see him take a little while and he keeps looking away, like looking down the ship, watching for the lifeboats. He's going to play with them, but he's unsure. It's just a really cool sequence. And I like the steadfastness of the lead violinist. And when they're done and he's like, it was an honor playing with you, gentlemen. He's great. All right, Will. You have in the notes a question about Rose and Jack staying together. I want you to explain your premise of it. So in a hypothetical world where Jack doesn't freeze to death and they both get rescued, do they stick together? I'm leaning towards no, because I think that in this era... The different worlds outside of the microcosm of a ship, which you experience the different worlds, but it's still very cramped quarters, would grate and become more of an issue. But you could do the same lying about the name, like hiding your identity thing when you get there. That is true, but that also pushed it a little bit for me because I think that the family connection would have to be really shitty for her never to want to reach out to her mom again. But according to the movie, she didn't. Yeah, so it's just like, I don't know. That part also pushes credulity for me in general. So it really questions the bonds of family and culture to a degree that I think would eventually actually cause an issue. I'm going to say probably because I agree with Mark that that sort of thing could be really grating. Even if she did go through with the lie, just she has grown up in a life of privilege. We can assume that she's never been hungry. She's never had to work all of these things and that would be difficult for her but I think she actively wants to reject that life enough that she would be able to make the shift and we know that she does because she chooses not to sell the heart of the sea so that she can make it on her own and the other thing is again trauma is significant and they went through something really traumatic together and that is going to create a bond but I will say I'm not going to say I like that he died, but I like that she did get married to somebody else who we're led to believe she did love and had a good life because trauma creates those bonds and it's significant, but it doesn't define her life. She's able to go on to have this wonderful life with somebody who can't understand what she went through and it still works out and is okay. All right. I mean, I don't have anything... Better to add to that, so... Yeah. Well, but do you say believable or not? I think, yeah. But I think before this massively long podcast for us, 
breaks into two and sinks to the bottom of the ocean, we should wrap things up and move on to next week. Yeah, next week, your mama's gonna hear her babies are queer for all that jazz. We're doing Chicago. We're doing our first Fosse. It's been a long time since we had any weg tent, so it's good to get back on that train. We've fallen off the band wagon. So until then- We're gonna be wagging our tails right on into next week. <laughs> Until Give then, a little wiggle if you see us on the street. Just wiggle your hand at us. You said wiggle. Wiggle. That changes the joke format entirely. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps other people to find this show. Last question What's the best piece of dating advice we got from this movie? Have a dance party. Solid. Yeah boats is this like when i said trains a couple weeks ago (laughs) yep (laughs) just boats um mine is gonna be carry around just like a stack of drawings and anytime someone gets mad at you you can be like here look at this well there you go until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye